Welcome back to the Casting Light Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Marin. Here at the Casting Light Podcast, we talk about lighting, the people that do it, and how they do what they do. We're on the web at castinglightpodcast.com. We're on Instagram at podcastinglight. We tweet at podcastinglight. And we're on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. This time on the podcast, we have Mr. Hillary Knox. He's a programmer and lighting director with 23 years of experience. He's also the lighting programmer on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. Hillary, welcome. Thank you for being on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. It's always good to be in the same place as you. You know, generally shows don't need more than one of us. So right. bump into each other at things or that time where you have two programmers working on one show. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's true. I mean, I... I have to say it's sort of like a rare pleasure to have a more than one programmer show just because hopefully you're not too busy to talk about stuff and either catch up on a personal level or talk about the things that, you know, with people that do what you do and you never get to, you never really get to do that, but it's, it's a good time. What I also like is running into or meeting people who are much younger than me and I can learn so much from them because they're all in deep into the magic sheet on the EOS, for example, or like stuff that I never really like sort of either have or took the time to like do deep dives on some of these folks who, who had access to like technology, you know, probably in like high school or college. Yeah, I've gotten really surprised by people on Vectorworks or oh, on yeah. some deep in stuff on MA2 where it's, wait, well, first of all, where'd you learn that? Yeah. I mean, there are some geniuses doing some stuff on MA2. I feel like I'm rubbing two sticks together sometimes, and I'll see something somebody 15 years younger than me is doing, and I'm like, wow, that's really cool. Like, you got to teach me that. And then they do, and then I promptly forget it for the next show. <laughs> well, the thing that's happened to me a bunch of times is I learned something or figured something out, and I wrote a macro to do it. Yeah. And then I promptly completely forgot how to do it because now I have a macro to do it. And then someone asks me, and I'm like, uh, like, I don't know. I, I made the macro two years ago. I don't remember how it works. Yeah. Well, fortunately, when it, when that stuff happens, I feel like I'm pretty good at relearning stuff in a hurry. So maybe it doesn't even look like I forgot it. <laughs> you know? So we're in the midst of shutdown, but you're working on The Late Show with uh, Stephen Colbert. When did that get started again? Okay. So let's see. I think the date was August 10th. If that's a Monday, uh, that was our first day back in the... I'm going to say the theater, but it's not really the theater because we took a sort of a small room that we typically use as like a green screen studio, like a tiny little green screen studio. We repurposed that. I mean, it, the room technically has a lighting grid, but I, it's probably not even eight feet off the ground. Um, but we repurposed this room, put it, built a sort of a replica set of Colbert's office because he'd been doing the show from his place in South Carolina yeah. up until, you know, all summer long, all spring and summer long. So, you know, we, we put in a replica, we lit it with the smallest, quietest fixtures, either that we had or that we bought, which happened to be a combination of about 16 Titan tubes doing 98% of the room. And then those things kick ass. Oh, I mean, I hate this word, but they're game changers. Yeah. I mean, I can't even say enough good about them. Yeah, so mostly those and that handful of GLP FR1s, which is sort of like my... It's the little light that could. I love that thing. They're so small and light. You can put like 50 of them on a single 208 circuit. Not really, but like probably 25 or something. I mean, it's, it's, it's we're living in the future on some of this stuff. It's amazing. 
so much of what I these days on TV, kind of in general, but definitely specifically on this show, what I look for in a light is how many of them can I fit in a small space <laughs> and being able to hide them in corners and, uh, you know, put a whole lot of them on a maybe a dubious, like, hanging position for weight. And how many cables do I not have to run to them to make it all light up? And just time and time and time again, it's it's been coming back to that over and over and over. I love the GLP stuff. So you're talking to us from the studio right now, and I yeah. appreciate you taking time out of your day to do that. Sure. Let's talk about the show. Let's talk about your position on it and your process of working on the show on a daily basis. There's sort of two answers to that, um, because there's kind of what we're doing now is sort of like the hopefully very temporary new normal, and then there's sort of the old normal that I hope we return to. Yeah, the, you know. the old normal is probably the more uh, instructive. <laughs> if I could remember back that far. <laughs> Seriously. So, kind of a typical day for me is uh, we come in probably about nine in the morning, and uh, one of the big sort of things that determines the course of my day is going to be whether or not we have a band on that day or not. We don't have bands on every single day. We, they're usually two or three times a week. Uh, I would say. So, if not, I'll end up having a little bit of a slower day. Uh, but if there is a band, then we will. I'll, I'll immediately get to work on dealing with, you know, dealing with the lighting for them that day. And it just depends. Sometimes they bring an LD. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they have a lot of ideas, but they're not bringing an LD. So it just kind of you just sort of like adapt day by day going on and you know we have plenty of meetings ahead of time about what they want to see or what they don't want to see or the directive could just be as simple as make it warm and make us look good or it could be like very specific so who's the lighting designer and lighting director on the show oh so mike scricka is the lighting designer lighting director on the show and how prescriptive is he about how bands and things like that work and how much contact do you have when it comes to meetings and such ahead of time it just sort of depends on the situation. Okay. So we get from 9 a.m. to typically noon to do everything we need to do for a uh, about a 1 o'clock sound check and rehearsal, camera rehearsal. And that includes physical setup, programming, the whole nine yards. As well as checkout and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so, and also, I should mention, there's a second board op on the show, Costa Leonardo's we kind of like divide and conquer the duties. Like if I have to break off and go talk to somebody, another LD with a band or a management type or something like that, he kind of has his daily routine that takes care of a lot of the basic diagnostic or nuts and bolts parts. And is also, unless it needs to be something that's sort of like highly stylized and fundamentally built into the, like into the look of the, of the band, he'll kind of take care of the like, the keys and backlight focuses and all that kind of stuff so that I can go sort of focus on the bigger picture and like what the look of what they want to what they want to create that day. That's definitely kind of in some ways a standard splitting of duties, you know, where someone's in charge of the keys and all of that kind of stuff and, you know, managing the sort of camera light. Yeah. And then someone else is in charge of managing the sort of overall look and yeah. essentially all, all of the backlight. Like, you know, if you split it upstage, downstage. You know, we developed a pretty good system of like, 
I'm going to take on my sets of cues. I'll take these parameters from these lights, even though they might be lights that he's in charge of focusing. And well, we had a system down. Hopefully we uh, retain it when we get back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we, you know, nine to noon, go to lunch for an hour, come back, do a camera rehearsal, sound check and camera rehearsal for about, it depends again, how complex they want to get with shots and stuff. Uh, and believe me, it can run the gamut of just do whatever you want to somebody who knows, hopefully knows what they're talking about, trying to sort of like tell the director what kind of shots they want to see and stuff, which he seems to be uh, relatively uh, receptive to, which is, you know, <laughs> a good thing. Yeah. And then uh, let's see. So, right, that takes us through camera reversal. And then we tear it all down. And. We rehearse the the comedy part of the show, like monologue, and then we, there's always some kind of like pre-taping stuff going on, like for the cold opens and stuff. And usually, on like a typical day, I won't be too involved with that. But again, every now and then, we tag team a lot of the stuff. So if Mike can't be, obviously he can't be in two places at once. So sometimes I'll go cover him on a, on another location shooting simultaneously is like the cold open or vice versa or whatever. Um, and then that pretty much gets us through the day up until they put the audience in and we start taping about 5.30 and end, I don't know, about 7. Um, and that's sort of a typical day. Got it. So, yeah. Where, where did the directive to have two programmers on come to? So obviously it's uh, clearly you guys need it, but I know a friend of mine was on a show that yeah. really needed two programmers, and that simply wasn't an option. Uh, well, I'll tell you where it came from. It came from Letterman, because back in the olden days, if you will, they had it was the very sort of like traditional split up of having a conventional board I see. Yeah. guy and a Verilite, and it was just that sort of like classic division of duties, and that, I guess, job descriptions or whatever carried over but now with the 21st century upon us uh we can be a lot classier about how we decide our you can be a lot more effective stuff up. oh yeah 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 i mean flexible and yeah i mean it's really great it's, um you know and some days me and costal switch jobs like just for just to keep it fresh <laughs> like it'll ld the music and so yeah it'll it, it's good so what is the sort of the structure of the parts of the show that keep getting reused and how did the structure of the queuing and how all the information is stored get developed? That's an interesting question that you mentioned because, okay, so here's what happened. I wasn't actually, so I've been on the show the entire time except for the first two weeks in the Loda. So I came in two weeks in and, you know, stuff like with the show, like with how the show runs and whatever, it was still being like, you know, shows were on the air, and but the logistics and the workflow and all that was still kind of being worked out. So at some point, maybe about, I can't remember what period of time it was, but at some point, let's just say it was like a year in, we decided it would be a good idea to just rip the programming of the show apart, keep it looking exactly the same, uh, but divide it up a little bit more appropriately to the way things had kind of developed. I see. Um, if that makes sense. Um, just so that, like, for example, the look of the set wasn't necessarily tied to any of the key light looks. So, which in the, in the sort of the original version it was. So one couple days or whatever on a 
weekend, I don't know what it was, dark week or something like that, I went out and sort of started tearing, chopping it all up and putting it back together again, just for mainly for flexibility's sake, um, so that we could be here for this batch of fixtures and then here for this batch of fixtures and we could mix and match and sort of like take a little from column A and a little from column B without having any sort of like overlap between between the two. I see. You know, between so you, you moved away from having full studio looks and went in sort of uh, task-based, a little more horizontal. Yeah, I mean, it's still, yeah, that's probably a pretty good description. You know, we separated out the audience lighting from anything happening anywhere else. We separated out the key lights from anything having to do with anything else. I think it's served us well going through that. Part of the reason I wanted to have you on the show is you're one of those lighting director programmers who works across multiple genres. You know, you can deal with non-linear and almost busking style shows all the way up to extremely precise one cue list theatricals. Let's say from a foreigner concert that's stuck inside of <laughs> a benefit dinner in a old bank building to Wicked on Broadway. Right. So... I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your association with Wicked. Yeah, I mean, I've spent a lot of time doing many, many, many productions of Wicked, um, mostly programming media servers for the projections. Uh, but I've had my hand in a little bit of the lighting sort of as needed. You know, again, that flexibility thing. If I can say something about potentially good about myself, I feel like I'm pretty good at kind of like coming in and looking at a system that is in place and trying to figure out what people were thinking and, and being able to work within that, hopefully in the style of something that was already created. Well, like, um, how do you mean? I, you mean like on a show or on a... Like you, uh, or yeah. you can tell where somebody is designed to rig and you can kind of see what its purpose was. Oh, probably more the first thing than the second thing. Um, but, oh, no, because on that second thing, I've been way wrong <laughs> in the past. <laughs> um, but no, just like, you know, being able to like sit down on a console and sort of see what their intentions were and like why they did approach A versus approach B. And I might be more of a fan of approach B in general, but you know, at least have a good enough understanding to make approach A work in the moment. For a while, I was almost like a, a professional fill-in for like probably uh, right up until I got this thing, this uh, late show. Um, I was, I had nothing constant. I was always doing stuff, filling in for people. And so, you know, you feel like you had been a professional fill-in until you got onto the late show with Stephen Colbert. Uh, you know, if you want to talk about your career up until then and sort of how you got into the business and... Oh, yeah. Kind of before then. Oh, well, actually, two things sort of that. So I was doing a lot of Broadway shows before then. Some of them never never made it past their their life in New York and then some were... I like how offhanded that was. I, you know, I did a lot of Broadway shows. No well, big deal. you know, I mean, everything's not going to be a hit. But uh, uh, the two that I sort of did the most of was Wicked and Jersey Boys. And I, you know, I reproduced... Many, many, many iterations of both of those things. Those are two big ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, and it was before that, I was like, you know, I, it would be nice to get on a hit just so that you know, you know, it's something I'd never done before. It was just like, it wasn't endlessly reproducing the same thing, but because there was always, you know, chunks of time in between London and Chicago or whatever the, the places or the tour, the places might have been. In all that Broadway stuff I did, maybe the most important thing I took away from it that 
carries through to this day is uh, being able to set up sort of like, let's call it a system. No, I don't mean a, a literal system, but like set up a, a system as, in terms of an idea or a workflow that somebody else is going to have to take care of and you're not going to be there to deal with the, with the problems as they arise, but you're, you're sort of like inventing a, a thing for them to have the tools to take care of the problems as they arise. Because, of course, programmers don't stay with theatricals, whether right. that's, you know, a sit-down or yeah, a tour. Yeah, yeah, um, So that's, you know, that was an interesting learning learning thing that, that by the end, it kind of became almost, I don't, I don't want to say the, the most important thing, but it's up there. I mean, it's probably in the, like, you know, top three of most important things when, when you're setting up one of those kinds of shows. That's a really good point, and I, and I don't think it's something that gets talked about a whole lot. You know, people will often talk about the process of programming a theatrical yeah. or the process of designing a theatrical, but this stuff is stuff that generally doesn't get talked about except amongst ourselves. Right. So tell me about some of what you learned about that and what, are the, and what these key uh, sort of system construction elements are. Well, I mean, are. I don't know if – it's probably easier to talk about more in general in, in terms of getting to know – the electrician that was going to be taking care of it, figuring out what they wanted, figuring out how to give it to them, and all the while sort of assessing their their skill level or their comfort level or having them tell you their skill level or comfort level. Um, I mean, I you know, in some ways, it's, it's really not that much different in, in, in general terms than if an if a LD says give me something that does this and, you know, you're left to work out all the little details of it. It's just sort of a different facet of that. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it, there were definitely some regular things that you would do all the time, but... Um, well, so let the, the, in that case, let's drill down to a more specific place and let's talk about Wicked specifically. Well, that's actually probably a really good example now that you mention it because for the projections on the tour, well... All the tours or whatever, uh, at least except maybe not the um, the UK tour because I didn't do that, and it was on a different console and a sort of a almost a self contained thing. But um, between me and uh, Elaine McCarthy is a projection designer. Between me and Elaine and um, everybody on her team and the, the electricians in the various cities or on the various tours, we sort of put together a really sort of I guess invented. I mean, nobody had, you know, there's no focus charts for this stuff. Like, you know. Well, because you were dealing with Hog 2s and Catalyst, right? It was, yeah, it was it was Catalysts, which did, still is Catalyst servers. Um, well, Catalyst 1s, the first well, Catalyst. So, yeah, so the very first iteration was Catalyst 1, which, for the sake of non-deprecation, I guess, got switched over to Catalyst 4 servers, so I reprogrammed everything from cat to, to be visually identical, but completely different programming. And then on that, that was on Hog 2, and then later on, it got, or for the outside of New York stuff, it, it all went on Grand Amaze, because uh, Warren Flynn was the lighting programmer, um, and he was a very, I would say, a pretty strong early adopter of the Grand Amaze, Grand Amaze 1. Um, so that, you know, that lasted forever. I mean, uh, up until I think recently, I think they might have taken the remaining Wicked US tour and put it on 
something ETC. Um, I'm not sure. Uh, but for the longest time, it was all just running, all, all running GrandMA. And, you know, so it had to be sort of reprogrammed a third time. And then it got, for New York, it got, it moved on to GrandMA 2 and had to get reprogrammed again, which I didn't do. I think Paul Sunlightner did it. Uh, did like he took it into his office and just took everything and, and reprogrammed everything. Um, but then I'll still go down there and maintain it every every so often. Um, so I mean, you know, I kind of got sidetracked on that, but it's been you know it's been through a lot of different front ends and uh, and stuff like that. And that's you know that's kind of another interesting thing is um, keeping the exact same visual thing going on across, you know, multiple generations of, of, of tools. What were some of the processes you had to develop to do the first show on the Hog 2s and Catalyst 1s? And then later, what were some of the, let's say, unexpected things you had to do to, to programming-wise to make the show look the same, even though the uh, sort of the back office stuff was completely different? Well, I mean, the early stuff, I mean, I actually... Because you were kind of learning at the same time as everyone else, because nobody had done this to this extent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we, you know, we were, in a way, we were kind of making it up as we go, as we went. And, you know, we, we definitely made some mistakes and learned some stuff, like mistakes about the structure that we would give the electrician to, to go from, you know, city one to city two. It's not that we didn't take it into account. It's, I think some of it was we just didn't realize the reality of, like, you know, we would make these sort of, like, pretty precise and elaborate uh, kind of focus grids for different surfaces of, you know, you know a drop that's way upstage, one yeah, center stage, yeah. one's downstage, that kind of a thing. We would make, you know, pretty elaborate, you know, this frames onto this, and if you do this exactly, then in the, in the sort of, like, focus cue list, then it's going to look right in the show, which wasn't always the case. Uh, and we sort of had to learn kind of why the systems we invented sometimes worked and sometimes didn't. And you get into, you know, it's a different, the, the balcony rail relative to the, to the stage is a different height or it's different if it's farther away. I mean, there were just so many things, like so many sort of moving parts that went into figuring out how to maintain or, or load in that show from, from venue to venue, I think we finally got it got good by halfway through it. But um, there was definitely a big learning curve there, um, just because there were you know three dimensional space things that I, I think we were all aware of. We just weren't kind of taking into account. Well, yeah, I mean, if you haven't generally toured with projection projecting onto three dimensional space with the scenic at different distances from plaster line. Yeah. Yes, of course, we understand. Yes, the balcony rail in different theaters is going to be different places, but because the way lights are used, there's a level of, well, we can figure it out. If it's 10 feet higher, it doesn't really change anything. But with projection, if it's 10 feet higher, it's going to make a tr tremendous difference. Well, right. And that, well, and that's actually another good point you brought up because, you know, the, the electricians were very accustomed to taking a show on the road with moving lights. Like, you know, by that point, everybody had done that. Yeah. But because of that, and I was kind of pushing, I think I was probably pushing for this because if we sort of used what they already knew from like the, the, 
the lighting workflow side of it and tried to incorporate it into the projection side of it, it would just kind of, you know, maybe take their comfort level up a, up a notch with something they hadn't maybe necessarily done before or their anxiety level down a notch, maybe. I don't know if you want to look at it that way. But I tried to make it as much about doing updating, like moving light focuses, because I knew they were used to it. Looking back, I'm not sure maybe that that was the best or at least the most effective way to do it. I mean, it got to a point where at some point you just really had to like get into the queue and sort of like subjectively assess what's going on there and know that with the, the balcony rail in Tucson, you can't hit the thing you need to hit way upstage the way you're accustomed to hitting it or, you know, something like that. Yeah. Um, so, the, I mean, I feel like we sort of maybe put them in a little bit of a position to, to make some of those decisions that they're perfectly capable of making, but, you know, we didn't realize in advance that they would have to be making it, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So then so, moving to a new desk and a new media server. Yeah. Uh, you know, I know you said that it required reprogramming, of course, because you can't transfer from a HOG2 right. show file to an MA show file, but uh, sort of show structure-wise, what changed? Overall, not really much did. Um, again, if you know, it, it's one of those things where if you had like the same electrician taking care of it from media server A and console A, and then moving them onto media server B and console B, you know, you sort. I think I feel like you have to weigh whether or not you know, what the best idea is, because maybe media server B and console B have a better way of doing something than the old way, but maybe for the comfort of the guy taking care of it, it's best to keep it as consistent because there's, you know, there's, you know, all the buttons are going to be in a different place. And that's, that's a, you know, a hard enough thing to deal with, let alone all the screens looking different. You know, that's a lot of stuff to get used to. So, I mean, I feel like as the hardware evolved, there was probably a an effort to keep it as much the same as it was before, even though you would never do it that way from scratch on the new set of hardware, necessarily. Yeah, that makes sense. You know? I mean, there's going to be changes even going from MA2 to MA3. Yeah, that's the next big thing I have to get my head around. Yeah. Um. And again, the young people are going to be the people that are going to educate me on that more than probably anything before, if history has is, is taught us anything. Speaking of history, yeah, uh, we started to talk about it a minute ago. How did you end up working in lighting? How did you uh, end up behind the desk? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, so I grew up in Nashville, and I thought I was going to, I thought I wanted to be a musician. Mm-hmm. Um, and It's going around down there. Yeah, yeah, there's there's a few. There's a few good ones. So I was in high school, and I was just helping out doing some of the theater shows in my high school, doing like audio and maybe doing some playing some things for like incidental music for plays and stuff. Um, and then the theater teacher was like, basically asked me if I wanted to kind of do some kind of other stuff because he needed some help. And I was like, sure, I'll, you know, check it out, see what see what it's all about. And I just started doing kind of a little of everything, like building sets and stuff. And it just sort of took off from there. I just sort of like gravitated towards lighting. And uh, I started doing little gigs, you know, weekend stuff to make some money. And then I ended up working. There used to be a, a theme park in Nashville called Opryland. I didn't realize it was gone. 
Well, it's been replaced by... It's actually been gone for a long time. It's been replaced by essentially a shopping mall. Oh. But, I mean, forever ago. But uh, it, was, it was kind of cool because when I started working there, they there was a pretty big, I don't know how many seats, but a pretty big like live music venue. The A-list country folk would come and play, and it would be a different, a different one each night. If we were lucky, somebody would play two nights in a row. But um, I ran a follow spot there and, and focused lights and, you know, cute big parkan rigs. And that was where I really learned a lot of uh, sort of the more like rock and roll side of how things were done at that time. Yeah. Um, and also constantly not getting too set up, too settled on, oh, we created this and now it has to last forever, as opposed to loading a show in, doing it, loading it out all in the same day. You know, I'd never, I, maybe I'd done a little bit of that stuff before in like sort of like my little high school side gigs or whatever, but nothing on that sort of scale. Um, it teaches so, you to not, not be too precious about anything. Well, or what the important stuff to be precious about is. Yeah. That's fair. Which is a good lesson everybody needs to learn because even some of the most experienced people I've worked with and even myself will get all will still get caught up in something that just inconsequential in the big picture. Um, and I feel like people should be able to tell each other that. But it's kind <laughs> of you know, it's kind of a weird yeah, thing tough. to be like, I don't know if you're keeping your eye on the ball here. Um I feel like I would like to think I would listen to somebody if they told me that, but you know, yeah. So I learned a lot of stuff there about sort of doing concert style production or whatever. Uh, and then I went to college for lighting for theater lighting, uh, at Carnegie Mellon. And I was still working on the side there as necessary to make a little extra money and stuff. And then let's see, it was good. I mean, I, I don't regret having gone to school for lighting, but I don't necessarily think it was essential, given given what I'm doing now. Uh, I think it probably would be for, and I'm not saying across the board that's true, I'm saying for me that's true, given where I ended up. Uh, and especially now with the skyrocketing costs of education and I mean, I would say somebody doing or wanting to do what, like something along the lines of what I'm doing now should take a really good hard look at whether or not going into a ridiculous amount of debt is worth it. Um, yeah, there's something to be said for, think of the opportunities that you'll have to pass up if you have to make payments on this $100,000 mm -hmm. plus debt for your education. Yeah, I mean, it's there's definitely things you have to go to school for out there, I'm just saying. I'm not sure lighting's one of them, but you know it's hard to tell somebody of that age anything they don't want to hear. So at that point, you probably couldn't have talked me into that. <laughs> Even though I mean, a couple times over the over the summers between semesters and years, I had a handful of job offers to be like, "Hey, do you want to come go on this tour?" Oh, so I worked at Opryland for a few years, and the whole reason I interrupted myself, then I, I did a summer at Light and Sound Design, which used to be a company that got that was then absorbed by PRG but they were doing a lot of concert tours back then and they had a shop in Nashville so I worked in the shop and they had stuff that let's say it was ahead of its time yeah 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 I mean I, I was so I, I was working in the shop for most of that summer and then sort of towards the end I, they started sending me out on gigs when I guess they somebody decided I 
knew enough of what I was doing to to send out. Um, but towards the end of that, they I think there's probably one or two tours they asked if I wanted to go out on. I had to really sort of pause and think about it for a second. But, you know, it was I think it was the summer before my senior year. And I was like, you know what? I'm pretty much there. Yeah. If I break off now, I know I'll never go back. So, oh, and the, another kind of sidebar interesting thing about working there was uh, learning the whole icon system, which was depending on the age of whoever's listening to this, you know, they're either going to know what that is or, or, or not. But it was sort of my first introduction, getting my hands deep in the nuts and bolts of moving lights. Um, well, we had Laura Frank on the show. Uh, okay. a while ago yeah. and you know she just could not contain herself when asked about why she loved the icon desk yeah there were definitely uh those people out there for sure um i never really got my hands on it too much other than for you know utilitarian purposes i never did a show on it um i i i learned a decent amount about it but i never got around to doing a show on it i do remember that light and sound design shop had a uh, a whole hog one there which was the console at that live music venue in, in Opryland. And I took it upon myself to learn how to run a whole hog world, kind of learn to run a whole hog one, at least enough to get some cues in there and playing back and stuff. So I think I was the only one in that shop that, that knew how to run that console. And they only have <laughs> one of them, but they sent me out on a couple of things that summer, uh, just because I knew how to run a whole hog one. So, yeah. you know, that, that was that was time well spent. And so you went back for senior year. So, yeah, I went back for senior year. I uh, did an internship uh, with Peggy Eisenhower and Jules Fisher for one of my semesters back. Really? Um, and, yeah, I watched them do a handful of shows. What were they working on at the time? I think they were in deep in, like, pre-production for uh, Ragtime. Was the, oh, was wow. the big thing that they were kind of working on. It's a hell of a show. Yeah, and then there were a little uh, smaller things here and there uh, that kind of came and kind of not like broad, not like long running Broadway shows that came and went, but just little like, uh, like uh, what's that, like a city center type of stuff and things like that. Um, and I learned an amazing amount just watching all of it uh, from you know from like the little detail stuff of like how you really intelligently, effectively construct a lighting cue all the way up to just like how it all works together. Not just like the lighting part, but like all of it, how designers talk to directors, and other designers talk to lighting designers. And it was a, it was a pretty amazing uh, education uh, that semester, I have to say. Yeah. So that, and then finished with school. That was the second semester of my senior year. And then I almost, I started doing, uh, working as an electrician, doing car shows. Did that for probably a season or two or something. And I was working for a company called the Obi Company. Oh, wow. Yeah. And mostly the people I was working with were based out of Detroit. So one thing led to another. And they asked me if I wanted to become like a staff, like one of their staff lighting designers, or maybe it was the only one at that time, their staff lighting designer for their, I guess, somewhat newly opened Detroit office. And I was like, yeah, because, you know, it was... Yeah, they're not around anymore, but they had a tremendous reach. Oh, yeah, yeah. And there were, I mean, I I met a lot of good people there and learned a lot of stuff from them about continuing all the stuff that I learned at Light and Sound Design about, like, how to prep shows and send it out and stuff, you know, stuff that I haven't done in 
pretty much since then. So I was there in Detroit designing car shows for about a year, then moved back to New York. And at the time, the Hog 2 was uh, almost newly released, and I learned that pretty quickly, and that turned into a lot of work. You know, it wasn't immediate, but it turned into the foundation of my career, essentially. And I was just doing anything, any shows that would come my way, some industrial stuff. Yeah, It's hard to overstate what a key development that was. Oh, yeah. So you got a lot of work by knowing Hog 2 and being proficient with it. Yeah. And having a design background and knowing what works. Yeah. You know, sometimes there would be the sort of like occasional gig where you weren't strictly a programmer. They would just need some guy to kind of like be a LD programmer, kind of doing it all, um, which that was fine too. And then, so my first Broadway show was uh, La Boheme, directed by Baz Luhrmann. Wow. Which was crazy. And I mean, probably one of the best times I ever had doing a Broadway show. I mean, there was so much about that experience that was so far out of the ordinary for doing a Broadway show. Like, for example? Uh, well, I mean, from like the, the creative, the top creative team on down, like, you know, they mm. know, they, you know, they grew up doing operas and stuff like that back in Australia, but they weren't bound by all the sort of like, I don't want to say traditions, but sort of like the well, conventions. The, yeah, the conventions and like the normal sort of workflows and stuff of how Broadway worked at that time. Even though, you know, it was still my first show, I wasn't even qualified to like make that judgment because I was still learning stuff then. But it was an interesting thing to have done first. Yeah. And I think there's a chance that if I had done like a dozen or half a dozen shows before that, I might not have been quite so appreciative of it for having already settled into kind of like the normal way of doing stuff. I don't know. I, I sort of did the weird one first. So you might have been grumpy about, oh, this isn't working in the way it's supposed to work. And instead, you're like, yeah, this is great. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, in a way, and not just one way, in a, in a lot of ways, I was just kind of happy to be there. But I was also happy to be there and like happy to see the result of working out of the ordinary, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, it was, it was looking back, I wish I could have gotten like a second chance. And I think, I, I don't know, I might have done two or three productions of that. But looking back, I wish I could have done another show with like that same creative team. I think that would have been really interesting on, you know, something else. Who was the lighting designer? Nigel Levings, Australian and one of the nicest people I've ever, I've ever worked with. He was so great. I haven't really kept up in touch with him, but he was such a good guy. Like I had, I just, I had the best time working for him. That's that's wonderful that that was your ex first experience. Yeah, on, well, you know, on Broadway. Yeah, because if your first experience had been working for a slave driver, I, I'm sure. Uh, which which I know you have, and we're not going to go into that. Oh, sure. I mean, who, you know, you have to because nothing makes you learn like embarrassment or fear of failure. The times that I remember of like having like that pit of despair in my stomach because it you know i wasn't able to and i have to say there were probably relatively few of them but you learn from it and you you become a better person because of it it's as much of a cliche as it is and it's true having certain experiences like that if you're motivated yeah you know you're motivated to never let that happen again and to always stay one step ahead yeah you know you yeah you figure out what you did wrong for that person and then Maybe you never work for them again. Maybe you do, and then the next time is better. So, you know, 
whatever. It's it's all fine. Like they're stressed out, you're stressed out. Learning how to keep your cool is a good lesson. For sure. You know. One thing that those kinds of shows definitely share with some of the other work you've done is this precision and this oh, yeah. requirement of precision that there's not nothing can be let go, nothing can be ignored. Everything needs to be precise and complete and and correct. Yeah. Uh, so some of the other work you've done other than theater and television uh, is like fashion. I know that. Yeah. And I know some of that has a, is a very, very different style of working, but also very precise. I'd like to know a little more about that. Being able to work at like a super high level of precision for like a fashion runway, it sounds like it might to some people is probably like the most boring thing. But I wish I could share it. Maybe I'll, I'll send you a picture uh, if I can find it, of this this one runway that specifically sticks in my head. there I mean, I wouldn't want to do it every single day, but there's definitely something rewarding about being able to focus a fashion runway with, I don't know, 100 movie lights and know that your light levels from this point to 10 feet later to 10 feet later are uniform because of, you know, you're just like insane amount of like attention to detail. I feel like is incredibly rewarding. And, you know, and that that's taking into account all the various factors of like, oh, you know, this light here is not as, is, you know, at full is not as bright as this one here. So how do we sort of make up for those imperfections that are sort of like handed to you to work with and make it sort of as pristine and uniform as you possibly can? Um, it's an interesting sort of challenge that I feel like, I mean, I see a lot of people working that I know don't necessarily, I mean, I think it all comes down to patience. Some people just don't want to be bothered with doing that stuff. And I totally get it because I wouldn't want to be doing it all the time. But um, once you've done your 10,000 magenta cyan chase, <laughs> you got to find other ways to like keep the interest up. It almost seems harder to light fashion with moving lights than it is with conventionals because of those variances especially if you're using arc bulbs yeah i mean there's you know there, there's a lot of variables like there's some lights you just for god's sake should never use to do that kind of work that being said i never really did too many fashion shows that had one of those like huge conventional rigs because there would be no reason to hire me to do that i mean i'm sure i probably did one or two over the years but you know, the reason they call me to do these fashion shows is to, like, manage the unusual, if you know what I mean. I get it. But, you know, I'm thinking about even fixtures like Best Boy, which are designed specifically to not change color when they dim. Yeah. And to have as little variance. Even then, there's variances. Yeah, I mean, speaking like that actually reminds me of a sort of interesting shootout we did here when we were looking for some new sort of general purpose moving lights for the Colbert stage. It was a few years ago now, so the most current stuff was not a part of it. But we did a fairly comprehensive shootout of probably five or six of the probably the brightest LED-based fixtures. And then for sort of a, I don't know, control group, we had probably three or four of the, at the time, current arc-based fixtures. And a few interesting things came out of that because, like, the stuff we were looking for was just kind of the thing you were talking about, color changing as it was dimming, not flickering as you got down to 15% or some, you know, some just all these yeah. sort of permutations of stuff that 
kind of come back to that whole precision thing. So as a result of that like little shootout we did, we landed on Ayrton Ghibli's, if that's how you oh. say it. I don't know what, how to pronounce any of the names of their products, but I think they make great stuff. I have to say, I didn't know what to expect going in to look at the, the current Ayrton profile line. Yeah. And I was really surprised. Yeah by the quality of the dimming, the quality of the color mix, yeah. you know, all those things that I look for and that I'm, I'm always fearful that people have forgotten to build into their lights. Yeah, well, I have to say that, I mean, I took these things down. I mean, I did the most annoyingly precise comparisons. And, you know, granted, we are talking about one. You know, I didn't have a hundred of each type of light, so it was not a consistency test. But um, I have to say that... Two years ago, or whatever the time frame was, we did this. It did everything. I and, mean, you know, we had a few requirements. One, it needed to be bright enough. Two, it had to have framing shutters. They all have the same color tools, but, you know, it had to be able to... Well, everything has CMY, but not everything has high-quality CMY. Right. Well, so the first thing we were looking for in the shootout was they have to be usable as key lights on TV. And everything else is second to that. And I have to say, they blew me away. Like, I tested every feature of everything, of every light, in an unrealistically precise comparison. Like, literally every single feature was better. Um, yeah. Sometimes only by that much, you know, only by a little bit. But every single feature was better. They've never not worked. I don't really have any super strong allegiance to any manufacturer, necessarily. I mean, I have my preferences, but... I know it really helps to not have the lights banging around in a truck every couple days. Yeah. You know, when you have it and they can sit in one place and not move, boy, they, they get so reliable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because you mentioned the fashion show, I just wanted to know a little bit more about this. Uh-huh. How did you actually run that focus? Did you run that from a remote? Did you run that from a remote while holding a light meter? Or did you just have the desk on a rolly? Roll, it was on a rolly. Uh, that was the only way to do it because I, I had to get close enough, you know, every... 15 or 20 feet, I had to get close enough to the edge of the thing. I mean, and it was, I'm going to say white, probably not white, but it was like a white or gray runway with black on either side. So, I mean, anything less than perfection was not really an option because it would just stick out like a sore thumb. Yeah. So, yeah, I just had to roll around. They haven't invented the remote yet that is touchscreen based that you're going to be able to, to do that with, especially with the shutters. You know, maybe Flying Pig was on something back with that Hog 2 wired remote with the oh, encoders. Oh, that's and right. The... No, 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 no. It didn't have encoders. It had the trackball. The trackball. I probably never would have thought of it again in my life had you not mentioned it just now. <laughs> I mean, let me tell you something. Maybe this makes me old, but I'll take wired and hard and knobs every single time. Oh, seriously. Like, seriously. I, you're never going to, I'm never going to turn them down. You know, I understand that your experience of the pandemic shutdown is a little different from other people's because you are working on a daily TV show. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, I was off for half of March, April, May, June. We started ramping up on this thing. I mean, I I had some time off, but I, I'm unbelievably lucky to have had the amount of continued work that I did. But uh, Do you have any thoughts for folks who were you know, not in that position, who were feeling bereft? It, let's put it this way. If I if this was five or six years ago, I would be in the exact same place that a lot of those people are who are either touring or doing one-off corporate shows or whatever. And, I mean, it, it scares the hell out of me that no matter how much skill you have or context or whatever in this thing, that being employed or unemployed at this point 
just comes down to just sheer dumb luck. I hate relying on luck to be successful. I don't know. Uh, I certainly can't make anybody feel any better. You do raise a good point, and that's something that, you know, maybe people can remind themselves of, that that to a certain extent, who's working and who's not right now does, to a certain extent, have something to do with luck, you know, where there are incredibly talented designers and lighting directors, programmers, gaffers, production electricians, head electricians, and straight-up electricians who, just by nature of the people they were working with before the pandemic, or by nature of the kind of work they were doing before the pandemic, just don't have access to anything right now. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that they're not excellent. It doesn't mean that people aren't really hoping to work with them again. People want to get them on shows. It's just they they just weren't one of the lucky few that had something either lined up or had access to stuff that was going to keep happening. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it really makes me sad to think people are thinking, well, not even thinking, but probably more like feeling that they're, look, there's, there's tons of people that I admire that are not working right now. And I, I can't, it's just, it does, it's just not, it's just not fair. It's a time for people to remember. For all that we have our identities wrapped up in this business that we're in and this thing we do, this is not the time. It's never a good idea to measure yourself against other people. Right now, it may be the worst thing you can do. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like doing that in general is probably very little good's going to come of it. But yeah, right now, we're in uncharted territory here in so many ways. I think about it way too much to be healthy, I'm sure. I mean, I'm, you know, I see a lot of my friends on Facebook, and I'm just like, I wish there was something I could do to help. But I mean, he, even here at this show, we don't have a full crew in yet. So do you have any thoughts, anything that you want to impart to people? Uh, you know, whether that's about programming or lighting direction, uh, or about something else? A lot of the stuff we do is pretty repetitive. And maybe one of the best things you can do is find new ways to keep yourself challenged. Don't fall into a groove. Yeah, I mean, you know, autopilot is a good thing sometimes, but uh, you shouldn't just instantly take off and hit the autopilot button. That's a really, really good point. I know know myself, I have found myself thinking, oh, I know what this show needs before I really know what the show needs. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, no, 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 stop. Just because you've done things like this before, it doesn't mean that you specifically know what this thing needs. And you're right. Even when it is the same thing, it's it's worth changing up how you get there, what your workflow is, so that way you don't fall into a groove. Yeah, I, b- I believe a variation on this topic was addressed in the uh, 1986 classic Top Gun. <laughs> Thanks very much for joining me, Yeah, Hillary. this is interesting. I, get, I mean, I never talk this much. So if people want to know more about you, if they want to see some of the work you've done, where yeah. can they go? Where can they find you? That's a good question. Other than turning on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. I would say that YouTube segments where, where we've had bands on is probably the most centrally located thing. If you go to YouTube and you do a search for, I think the words are Colbert performs, then you get a list of musical performances. Now, the only thing is about that, they rotate off of YouTube. So I'm not sure what's still on there right now. We haven't done a band on this stage in five months or whatever. So I'm not really sure what's there right now. But in general, that's the answer. And then the Rihanna fashion thing is on Amazon Prime. Hillary, thank you so much for joining me. And, you know, I always close the show by saying, have a great show. But literally now, because you're sitting in the studio waiting to do a show, have a great show. All right. Well, thanks very much. I really enjoyed this. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Casting Light Podcast. Visit us on the web at castinglightpodcast.com. 
Use the contact form there to let us know what you think, and you can also check out all of our previous episodes there. We're on Instagram at Podcasting Light, we tweet at Podcasting Light, and we're on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. Our theme music is Color Me Dead by The Lame Drivers. The Casting Light Podcast is a production of Casting Light Incorporated. I'm your host, Jason Marin. Thanks for listening. Have a great show. Thank you.